All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Literally Everything. This is the first episode of our podcast. Hello, Ethan. Hello, Max. So we're going to talk a little bit right now about what, what this podcast is. And I guess first we should talk about who we are. So my name is Max Staley. Um, and this is the podcast which I am doing with my friend Ethan. You are named Ethan Pack. Ethan Pack. And we're friends from college. And we decided to do a podcast together. Yeah. And uh, we figured that we both have recently in the last year completed PhDs in the humanities and we're taking different routes in our uh, things that might become careers someday with hope. Um, But we both wanted to create a kind of discussion that would deal with literally everything. Right, Max? Right. So one thing we're not going to talk about is our job searches, probably. Okay, great. Uh, Because that's like depressing enough. What we're going to talk about in this podcast is... Literally everything but our jobs. But our jobs, yes, our careers. No, it's like the academic humanities. So we are people who are kind of semi in academia, semi leaving it. And we want to talk about what's going on in... Um, history, literature, politics, all these kind of conversations, philosophy that, that are happening in the academy and in the broader culture and kind of try to bridge the two, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so to specify more, Max's PhD was in history and he studied early modern Europe. And my PhD was in comparative literature and I study Middle Eastern literature and culture primarily. Mm-hmm. And... We also feel that in the world, there's like um, one of the benefits of the digital explosion we all live in is that there's a billion think pieces and a lot of cultural commentary and um, kind of academic appropriated discourse that circulates online. But a lot of it um, sometimes seems to sort of function without necessarily the entire generative context that gave birth to those ideas. So there's some ideas that are kind of out there, but lacking in context. And we hoped that we could bring our training, my training as a literary scholar, his training as an historian, to put in context some of the debates and discussions that circulate in in culture and politics and the arts. Um, And because a lot of them actually have roots in academia that are somewhat invisible and we hope to maybe shine those lights and explore those roots as well. Absolutely. Yes. Um, there's a lot of discourse out of there. And it's not all bad. And we're not trying to say, oh, we're these two smart, smart Alex who are just going to show how everyone is dumb, uh, who doesn't have a PhD. That's really not the point. I mean, there's a lot of good discourse out there that is dealing with stuff that we've studied. And we just want to provide some more, uh, like you said, context, the academic context, the, the, the kind of way that these ideas have become generated and kind of they've circulated, circulated the out um, just to give a little bit more depth and, and breadth in terms of, of those kinds of conversations, which are becoming more and more prevalent. Like you see more and more conversation about like the history of the enlightenment, for example, um, on Twitter, at least. And we want to talk about fantastic. That. Yeah, it's great. Well, sometimes it's like makes you feel like how necessary how necessary are we if people are just you know teaching each other on Twitter about all this stuff? But I do think that there is some value to be added. Um, through maybe it. we can also channel some of the 
emotional distance and neglect that you get as a, a PhD student yeah. so that people can really get the whole life cycle of, of the scholarly experience. It's not just ideas, you know, there's also neurosis and abandonment. Alienation. Oh, alienation. For sure. Plenty of alienation. But no, no, it's actually, it's a great moment. I feel like when we were in college, um, Max and I went to Columbia University in the city of New York. That's like, that's somewhat of an inside joke because they just yeah. would, they would put that on everything as if you didn't know what city you were in while you were there. And as if there's any city that's less subtle about it, the fact that you're in it in New York. Yeah. Um, but back then it's, you know, I feel like you would kind of learn something, you know, like, oh, race is a construct and it would blow your mind because no one was talking about that. I remember that, that exact, learning that exact concept from Eric Foner and being like, wow. Wow. Yeah. And now it's like, you know, it's it, it not, it unfortunately, maybe not as widespread as we might hope it would be, but it's a, it's like the type of thing you'll hear in like the presidential debates or the type of thing that you'll just come across in like a recap of big little lies or something, you know, I mean, it's, it's much more pervasive. A lot of uh, the ideas that, and, and a lot of those ideas kind of um, in becoming more widespread, obviously, you know, only so much of the idea comes across. And, and so I think that's why it's an interesting time to sort of bridge, to serve as a bridge between the world of scholarship and the world of um, popular culture. Yeah. And, and it's, that's kind of the point is, Academia is not an ivory tower, and it's becoming more and more evident that these ideas are getting out um, and trickling out, um, some more successfully than others. And we kind of want to not necessarily aid that process, but like shine a light on how it works. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The how. The how, exactly. And so I guess also we should like list some things. I mean, we are, you know, experts in our in our field. Um, so there are certain things, areas, um, topics that we we specialize on and we're going to focus on are going to be kind of recurring um, elements of our show. So I would say, you know, if you're interested in the Holy Roman Empire, Israel, secularism, uh, religious violence, you can add some stuff here. There's um, the Enlightenment. Palestine. Bro. Palestine too. Um, colonialism, you know, questions of um like so orientalism post-colonialism that's sort of the eventually you sort of can you know pick the team that you're that's the most useful for the work you want to do it doesn't mean you don't do other stuff but for me that was um you know where i had maybe anchored my intellectual orientation mm -hmm. and max i don't know for you would you More say like secularism or, yeah religion and politics religion and political religion thought. and politics yeah. And um, and one might be surprised how much some of these issues come up in, you know, kind of current event moments that seem very, very far from them. You know, uh, hopefully even today we'll, we'll kind of give some examples of that. Yeah, so today we're going to start out with a conversation about current events, um, about Donald Trump and his relationship with two different um Members of the axis of evil, let's say the two the two oh, remaining yeah. members, Iran and North Korea, and Ethan has some thoughts about why he seems so friendly towards um, North Korea and uh, kind of making these um, overtures to Kim, whereas uh, 
the attitude towards Iran is unchanged from the American foreign policy stance over the past few decades. Um, so we'll talk about that. And then I am going to uh, talk with Ethan about some stuff about the political spectrum and its role in the way we see the world today. So let's get started. I think we can just go straight into the first segment here. All right, here we go. Um, yeah, and part of what we're going to do here, you know, is it's not going to necessarily be the place where we where we say, hey, this is like where the Iran-American nuclear negotiations left off last night, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll kind of assume that like you We'll, we'll try to provide as much context as is necessary for our discussion. What I'm interested in more is is questions of representation. Um, and so how, uh, in this case, Iran and North Korea are represented in maybe if there is a national discourse in America, you know, and in the mind of Trump world, which is this like, you know, like self-contained reality. And... Uh, and, and how it has or hasn't changed over the years. And so uh, I have a few different ideas and I'll, Max, I'll try to like take little stops at each one to let you jump in. Um, but I think that something, something that's very interesting is that, so Donald Trump, um, you know, he yesterday, I guess, went into North Korean territory for the first time for US president. And he's met with Kim in person twice or three times. I don't remember. Um, with Kim Jong-un, the president of uh, North Korea. And whereas with Iran, they're um, pursuing this policy of like maximum pressure, I think they call it, of like the most aggressive sanctions. It's actually, Max, not just a continuation of what's been the case before. It's quite a radical break because he pulled out of an agreement True. that the, the previous president negotiated. Yeah. And it's much more aggressive than um, um, Bush's approach. Bush kind of really at the end of the day fell asleep at the wheel with Iran because he was so the administration right. was I would say that but but know. generally like the consensus since the revolution the Islamic revolution of 1979 uh, has been bad yes, guys. Re that regime change is the desirable outcome and what American foreign policy with Iran is is aimed at I mean a little bit less with Obama but Obama wasn't saying we're going to be friends now it was managing um, a threat yeah, but but there would be like engagement. But yeah, and so, you know, so why is this? And so the the term orientalism in that frame of thinking comes into play and won't spend a lot of time on what orientalism is, but uh, it was originally um, a book by a Palestinian-American scholar named Edward Said, and it is about um, the production of knowledge about the Orient. So how academics, scholars, policy people, you know, artists produce and reinforce um, a certain representations of what in the 19th century was called the Orient. And that could be anything from what we would now call the Middle East to what w would later be called like, you know, East Asia or the yeah. Far East. Um, and so, you know, how do, and, and sort of what's the interaction between um, cultural ideas and sort of almost everyday speech and like, you know, the way that powerful institutions like, you know, say an empire or a, or a country like the United States engages with places and peoples in the Orient. And, um, and, and so my first thing with the case of Iran, North Korea, you just look at it and on, on the very, very surface, you're like, ooh, this isn't fair. Like, 
this, you know, maybe it's because Kim has nuclear weapons, so we can't be that aggressive because we don't want him to like nuke Honolulu and Iran doesn't yet have nuclear weapons. Um, But I think that there's a little more going on. Some of it has to do with Islamophobia. Some of it has to do with um, Trump's idiosyncratic personality. But as I thought through this issue, I was realizing that one of the biggest takeaways is that there is not, as there was even in maybe even in the Obama administration or Bush, or there is not one default consensus American thought about the Middle East or about Iran in the way that there used mm. to be. That was, that's what, it, it's made up of this jumble of the old school Islamophobia, like they're like satanic demons, you know, stuff. But it, and Trump makes use of that but it's also mixed up with this like kind of alpha male real politic thing where Trump, um, he wants to be the alpha, but also re- acknowledges that there's even bigger alphas out there than him, which to him, I think are like Putin and the Saudi and the Gulf mm. monarchies. And, um, and so there's a bunch of different dynamics. And I think Trump has so scrambled and turned upside down so many um traditional alignments in politics, which we'll probably talk about later, that it actually makes it that it's not like, you know, in, in, in when we went to war with Iraq, the American public, it was a very crystal clear, like two sides. If you're for it, you might tend to think these things about the Middle East. If you're against the war, you might tend to think these things about the Middle East or Arabs or Islam. And I think that a lot of that has been scrambled and unpacking that would be would be interesting, but um, but Max. Well, yeah, think? I'm just thinking of the Syrian civil war and the range of responses to that. So there isn't really a coherent um, left wing response to it, and there isn't really a coherent right wing response in terms of should we, you know, when it happened, should we have intervened in favor of the uh, moderate rebels. Um, and then in terms of just, and I, I do think that there is this background, which isn't really discussed that much, um, in mainstream American discourse, which is like the Sunni and Shia, that there's basically a, a civil war happening throughout the Middle East between Sunnis and Shias. And like, there's even like, the American public does not seem to grasp that. And I think you can see that in, 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 in yeah, the way still. that um, some yeah. people in the Trump administration were kind of trying to imply that there were connections between Iran and um, maybe not ISIS, but some kinds of like Al-Qaeda, you know, Sunni um, terrorist organizations that are that are actually the enemies of Iran. Um, so I do think that, yeah, it is it is kind of jumbled and if you compare that to north korea that's not so much the case yeah and and so like part of you know because i so i have a lot of friends and colleagues who are iranian i live in los angeles which is colloquially referred to as tehrangelis and um and and you know like iranians all in iran and and the diaspora like you know extreme diversity of opinion you know um strongly held opinions, but, you know, from kind of all different positions. And so I see on Facebook, on Twitter, kind of what people are saying. And I think it it's such a different moment, um, the sort of drumbeat to war, if it is that, because the American public, I mean, this is, you know, the other thing is after 9-11, the idea of America is going to go to war, first Afghanistan, then Iraq, 
was really just like the you know, the elephant in the room that everyone's eyes were drawn toward that. You know, almost every issue, every other issue was, you know, silenced in comparison. Whereas now this is just like every day something crazy happens in the world. And every day Donald Trump does something crazy about the crazy things in the world. And if America happens to go to war with Iran, that's just one of those things. And so um, it's, I, but I don't know if that necessarily neuters or neutralizes some of the discourses that were at play historically when America would go into war in the Middle East or not. Um, but I want to kind of just like, I'm just going to like throwing pasta on the wall, okay. put out a few ideas and Max, tell me what you think of them. Okay. So you have, let's like take the, like, I think where I've been trained to start would be some kind of racism again, you know, Islamophobia and racism or Islamophobic racism. And we know that Trump has made use of that, you know, like the Muslim as a terrorist or monster or, you know, Mm-hmm. bad mm-hmm. dude um and you know the muslim ban obviously was that and um and the fact that the supreme court upheld it even though he was explicitly racist in his proposal for it you know uh shows that that hasn't gone away that's like at play here um but then there's also this thing that's uh particularly pronounced with trump and his and his crew um where they're like they love the Gulf monarchies in a way that, you know, historically America has always been close to the, to the Saudis and, but it was a relationship that seemed to be kept away from the public. It wasn't something that was being sort of celebrated. It wasn't yeah. part of the messaging of our leadership. It's like, we fucking love mm. these guys, you know? And for Trump, he, like he fucking loves these guys and he loves telling everyone that like, he doesn't care if they chopped up, you know, a Washington Post journalist into yeah. pieces. Like, yeah doesn't care and it's not to say well he can't be islamophobic because he loves these like despots but um oriental despots in quotes but um it does seem that like in in the world of people who surround him there is sort of like a there's a good and evil within the middle east and the good guys are the ones who i guess you know, have just historically been aligned with us. They probably don't realize this, but the reason they probably think that the Saudis are, are the good guys and the Emirates are the good guys is because the good guys donate a ton of money to right-wing American think tanks that produce the ideas sure. that the right-wing thinks. But yeah, so there's this, there's this sort of embrace of those guys as part of a larger embrace of the global alpha despots. You know, Duterte in the Philippines and to some extent Kim, you know, and... um Putin and it's just and, and Trump's sort of like scrambling every, everything like I you know fuck the demo, the democratic allies in Western Europe I'm all about these like despots from like the global yeah. South kind of um, and uh, or you know not the West and so there's something sort of like fungible there and it has to also do with his personality and how he views diplomacy as like I make deals with mm-hmm. other big dudes and so to me it's interesting like. How do we trace the thread of racism and, you know, paranoia and Islamophobia that is in this carpet? <laughs> Sorry to pick another mm-hmm. Middle Eastern mm-hmm. type of a metaphor. I've been reading Middle Eastern literature for like 10 years, everyone. You know, it's just, mm. I'm all carpets now. But, you know, there is a thread. But, you know, in his, I would say like in his discourse about Muslims, 
it's not as overtly racist, I think, as his discourse about Latinos or yeah, even African Americans. No, absolutely, I'd say he doesn't. It's not quite as uh-huh. dehumanizing, and that, I mean, you know that's not to forgive it, but like, but why not? You know, like, what 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 are his investments and what are the stakes now? And and is that different than what we're used to seeing from like well, I American? I would say it is. So, like, in terms of poli- the, politicians, uh, it's. To bring back North Korea, so there is racism at play with the American or Western view of North Korea as this, like you said, Kim is this oriental despot and the people of North Korea are these brainwashed masses, right? And brainwashing comes from the Korean War, right? I think that, or maybe from, I'm not sure, it comes from there. I mean, this idea of like this vast, docile, is like informed by racist conceptions of East Asian people. Um, But I would say that that kind of racism is less potent than Islamophobia is right now in like this historical moment. And also the Cold War context Mm -hmm. of, you know, outright hostility towards North Korea as a communist country is less potent than hostility towards Iran as an Islamic country. country that is pursuing a a religious kind of agenda um, within its borders and and outside of its borders as well and contending with our allies. So so that's like kind of a more symbolically... It's like because North Korea is like a holdover of communism, which is already lost, so to speak. This um, weird kind of anomaly that shouldn't exist and is basically annoying because it has a nuclear... It has nuclear weapons, and it also, if the regime were to fall, it would be a a huge humanitarian crisis. So it's kind of propped up by China because they wouldn't want to deal with the instability that would result from the regime toppling. So it's kind of like, it it seems like it's a thorn in the side of the international community, um, as opposed to Iran, which is easily more easily um, construed as as this existential threat. It's geopolitically, its geopolitical position is more important because of where it is on the Strait of Hormuz. It can really easily impact um, global flows of oil. What else was I going to say? It just seems more uh, more of a threat, and also it's it's because of Israel. You, you talked about the the Gulf states, but I mean Israel. Oh, yeah. Kind of uses it as this idea of a, of a as an existential threat, um, which is very important. Kind of in terms of justifying the Zionist project, um, the idea of an existential threat to uh, Jews. So um, I think those are all kind of elements of it as well. But I do think it's it is interesting because you know he has kind of his his foreign policy is kind of about overturning. Um, a lot of the presidents, and 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 I guess that one of the the biggest things is that Obama did set us on a different trajectory. And so if his whole foreign policy agenda is to reverse everything that Obama did, then that would make sense that he would want to um, resume hostilities with the one kind of traditional um, adversary that Obama had, in fact, yeah, reconciled with in some sense. Reconciled with. Yeah. So I'm going to make, I think, like two, three quick departing points. Yeah, and we all know. It's gonna like, be a few quick. <laughs> you bring up Israel, so yeah, I want I wanted to bring up Israel in, in its own right because, and, and so this is the thing. As I see, you know, and I completely understand this from a lot of my friends and colleagues who are Iranian, 
especially who are, who are Iranian and not Jew, Iranian Jews who have their own kind of take um, or takes, you know, that they're just like, ah, what the fuck? Like, you know, to them, Israel is the, you know, turning up constantly the the heat under the pot that will boil over and, and, and lead to this regional war that, you know, where all mm. Iranians will will suffer. And so even if they're opposed to the regime, they're like super opposed to what they view as Israeli warmongering. So I also want I want to say like one or two things to qualify that, to, you know, add a little bit from from my like core core research. Uh, prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu of Israel, he's been the prime minister for 10 years. All that absolutely applies to him. He did everything he could to um, prevent the Obama's nuclear deal from happening, including basically jeopardizing Israel's relationship with the U.S., um, which is its greatest strategic asset. He gambled it all, and for for the nonce, for, and, and, you know, it seemed he lost. And then, like in the fluke of America's a fucking crazy place, we actually elected Donald Trump, and then everything that he'd done wrong and everything he had attempted that seemed to have failed was like back on the table. That being said, it's really important to note that the Israeli intelligence community, the Israeli military have consistently disagreed with him and even publicly aired it, which is very rare, their views that the that the nuclear deal was a good deal and that, um, or it was the best deal that was going to happen and that they don't view Iran as an existential threat. They don't really... Um, even Mo- Moshe alone, he was the defense minister under Netanyahu for a number of years. He was in the Likud. He just left the Likud. But he's he's like the most right-wing chief of staff Israel has had in the past, really probably the past 35 years. And he was like, when, they, when the Iranian leadership talks about like, oh, we're going to destroy the Zionist regime, that's not what we're afraid of. We're not afraid of like they push the button and nuke us. They, we don't actually think that that's what they're going to do. Um, it's more about like the like the regional support of like proxies that dest- that can like make life hell for us like Hezbollah and stuff, and so that but that conversation is very lost. It's even in Israel, it's like hard to have a bigger bullhorn than the prime minister, mm. especially this prime minister. By the time it gets to America, um, both for supporters of Israel and critics of Israel. The line is that Israel wants the U.S. to go to war with Iran or, view, or you know, Israel thinks that Iran's going to, like, push a button and nuke it off the earth. And that's not really, like, an, a, a total or accurate assessment of, of all the sort of stakeholders in Israel. But it's definitely been trotted out as kind of, like, a type yeah. of election issue, you know. So leaving Israel, I also want to say that none of this is, I'm not here to say that Iran doesn't present a threat to global stability or any stuff like that. Again, my, my, I'm more interested in how it's represented. And so that gets to my last point, which is war and the opposition to war. And so you might think, you know, our big wars of people who are alive today, you have Vietnam mm-hmm. and everyone was like, no, you know. Peace, Forrest Gump, we're all know, you know, the the youth. And uh, and eventually, like, in large part, American dissatisfaction with the course of that war led led very gradually and bloodily and painfully to to its end. Then you have the Iraq war where it seemed like it was like about 50-50 split. But, you know, there was definitely not like everyone on in the country. It wasn't like D-Day where everyone was like, yeah, we absolutely have to, to go to war. There was a large and vocal opposition. And the Bush administration basically said, we don't give a shit. If half of Americans are against this, we don't care. And so then you get to this war 
And like, what are the, if this becomes a war and like, what are the tools and the levers to oppose it? You know, do you say, oh, hey, this is just like Islamophobic, you know, like propaganda, you know, which is, it, it is on one level, but it's also like, has to do with the psychology of this really idiosyncratic person who we elected president who doesn't really, he kind of dips in and out of the discourses that circulate to drum up support for war, for aggressive American action in, in the Middle East and in the Orient and stuff. And his base is, you know, allegedly isolationist. But you know that if tomorrow Trump said, hey, I fucking hate Kim, Kim's going to nuke Hawaii, so I have to, like, nuke North Korea. His, his base, base is, like, like oh, we're about so owning lips. You know? Like, they're about whatever is going uh, to piss off liberals, so... <laughs> Well, that's important. We well, it's just like what I've been saying about the, the like his like so the first implications of, all, of that. He, and... Yes, his foreign policy, his mind, he's highly idiosyncratic. But then he has he has. I'm kind of changing the subject right now, but he he has these people surrounding him, like Bolton and um, who's the who's the CIA guy? I can't remember these names of these Pompeo, these monsters, Pompeo. Um, who are like highly wedded to strongly wedded to this project of pursuing regime change in Iran. So I do think it's kind of like he I don't know, he doesn't seem that interested in in Iran to be honest. I think he's kind of lets it, I, I, that's what I think it's this whole Iran situation. Yeah. He's letting them drive he's it. Letting he's them he's drive. not interested. He was going to bomb them but then just decided not to, which was actually like a good thing, but it was one of like it, it the greatest thing he's ever done. He said, well, wait, we shouldn't kill 150 <laughs> people over a drone. It's like the smartest thing I've ever heard him say in his presidency. And, and he's not at his rallies. Like, you know, if you take like the racism angle on, on like Latin American immigration, he is hitting that in public, tweeting about it so often. Whereas Iran seems to, it doesn't seem to be a preoccupation like you're saying, other than to the extent of like, Obama was a real money. loser yeah. for negotiating with these fools, you know. Um, how sanctions work, he doesn't understand how trade works. I mean, he doesn't understand <laughs> how any of this works. So I think he doesn't grasp, there's like a big, big thing with Trump is he doesn't grasp how these issues are talked about. Like he didn't grasp how immigration was talked about. Like you had to use these dog whistles, but he knew kind of intuitively what people wanted to hear. Um, so he just kind of said it without, um, he just said what he thought people wanted to hear at his rallies. And then those became um, these keystone policy aims of his, the, the, like, like the Muslim ban Policies, and yeah. the wall. Well, but if he has a good finger on what people want to hear, isn't it, in, is it interesting perhaps that he hasn't made Iran a centerpiece? Like, does that show that he thinks that his people don't Not really sure. care that much about it? They may care about like, don't let Muslims in the U.S. and this, you know, nativist racism, but that they don't necessarily want to embark on like an imperial yeah, I don't, like I don't policing. Really know. I mean, there is definitely a project of like conflating um iran with sunni terrorist groups and covering up the role that go the gulf states yeah. have sunni gulf states have in in financing and supporting those and and exporting the ideology um that undergirds terrorist groups but yeah i don't know i mean it, it's 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 hard to say i mean there's the there's yeah his presidency there's his mind um but I do think that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something interesting to think about. Just that the, the, when, when you look at North Korea, when you look at Iran, there's Orientalism is functioning, but they're very different kinds of, of Orientalism. 
Um, and it's useful to think about, yes, how, how ideas um, about those, uh, about that part of the world are produced. Yeah, how they're produced and, 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 and what other variables they, they mm-hmm. function amongst, you know. Yeah, we can leave it at that. I, I, I realized I, I, I probably wanted to talk more about um, the Israel lobby okay. in Iran. Sounds but that's, good. You know, I mean, that like can kind it's of be a developing a situation, so we might have um, cause to talk about it again soon. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll yeah, come back and talk about not, the political yeah. spectrum. All right, we're back. Mm-hmm. After some technical difficulties, that was me. The listener, the listener should know we. I live in San Francisco, and and Ethan lives in LA. So this is a remote, uh, buddy podcast. Yeah, and in LA, we just don't know about all this technological mumbo jumbo. Yeah, for sure. I had to turn um, all my crystals upside down and un- <laughs> take my crystal <laughs> out of its holder and replug it. All right, so let's 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 get to the last topic. It's. Um, I've, this is just something that I have been interested in a, in for a really long time, and it is um, the political spectrum and why why we use it and what kind of ideas are out there uh, as far as critiques of them. So, I mean, we should first say, you know, why does the political spectrum exist? This is the main the main device we use to orient ourselves. Um, and to place political ideas in relationship with one another. So you can say, I'm someone who's on the left, for example, or that's a left-wing idea, or that's a right-wing idea. And it's this one you know, unidimensional spectrum. And why, why does it exist? It's because of the French Revolution, right? So um, in, the, in the assembly during the French Revolution, the royalists sat on the right, and the Republicans um, sat on the left, and the Republicans being the ones who liked that the revolution happened, right, and who wanted, wanted a democracy for further the revolution and make more reforms and you know, transform society more. And the people who wanted to conserve the old traditional hierarchies and everything, they were on the right. Um, and so that's how uh, that's where it, it comes from. And Essentially, the idea of a spectrum um, and referencing these ideas based on left and right and center came out of histories that were written about the French Revolution several decades later, and they spread mainly through um, the Marxist tradition. And actually, what I learned was that it wasn't common in America to use left and right and center until the 20th century. That makes sense. Yeah, so so I've always thought, well, okay, so as everyone knows, it's not really, it, it, it can get confusing, right? Because there seem to be conflicting ideas on the left and conflicting ideas on the right. And how are these things that are seem to be opposite, like the you know, totalitarian fascism is a right-wing idea, but also you know, super libertarian capitalism is, a, is an extreme right-wing idea. So how can these supposedly be very different ideas um, or political philosophies exist together? How are they close together on a political spectrum? Um, and the horseshoe, the horseshoe there. Well, that's one. So, so there's all sorts of ways that people have developed to um, address these inconsistencies. And the, the, the two most famous is one is the horseshoe theory, which is saying that 
you know, as you get further extreme out on the left and right, that comes together like a horseshoe. So that left wing uh, communist totalitarianism is close to right wing fascist totalitarianism in this space that you've created um, for political philosophies. And the other one is the famous political compass. And it's actually like because uh, the political compass kind of became a meme where people created different versions of the political compass, like jokes about it with different labels on the axes. That's where I kind of started thinking about this, this topic in general. But the idea is that there's, you know, two different axes, so two different spectrums and a, and a, and a two-dimensional spectra, space, yeah. spectra. It's, I think it's spectrums. I think they're both okay, okay but yeah. it's spectrum. Yeah, they're both um, okay. And... So, so one axis, one axis being economic uh, justice, right? Or what? and now I can't even remember because I've I seen so like many kind of fake e- ones. There's so many variations. Economic. It, this isn't exactly what it is, but something like interventionism versus like hands-on versus hands-off. You know, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So like, so the left is really hands-on, and the and the right allegedly is like laissez-faire, hands-off. And then like uh, social economic. and cultural politics, like how do you feel about crime and punishment? Like libertarian versus totalitarian, right? So it's like egalitarian well, versus hierarchy, and then libertarian versus statist, right? So you have like the libertarian, um, like liberal left is on the bottom left, right? And then this the the totalitarian left or statist left is, is upper. The upper left-hand quadrant, the upper right-hand quadrant is the, you know, conservative, like socially conservative state power, like crime and punishment, right, but also economically libertarian. And then the bottom right is like libertarianism. So let no state control of anything, either the economy or, you know, personal behavior and morality, right? So that's the that's the political spectrum, uh, political compass. Um and so a jog around the country. Yeah, so, uh, so I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think? Uh, like, what what does it make you think? Like the political spectrum. Just give me your kind of first impressions of it as a as a device which we use. Yeah, my, my first impression is that um, the the le- the the simple one dimensional left right thing um, is really powerful and produces a lot of like kind of team identity. But it has this weakness in that. So one, you know, I'm going to refer to various family members. I'm going to maybe anonymize their relation to <laughs> me until I talk with them. But I have a immediate family member who is very um, kind of libertarian, conservative, like, um, or he, he's kind of more just like a traditional like conservative from the middle of the 20th century. And so he's horrified by Trump and, you know, he loves George F. Will. Oh, so, you know, he's not my mother. That's like (laughs) the only giveaway. And he has trouble distinguishing the difference between someone like President Obama or Hillary Clinton, who is like very much of the center left and Bernie Sanders, because to him, it's all like all the left is like the same. And I find a very similar tendency among my friends in academia who are, or, or outside of academia, who are in the hard left, they look in the, away from themselves and they see Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and right behind them is like George Bush and Donald Trump. And they're all like, oh, they're all the same because from where we stand, you know, what's the difference? Yeah. I, and I think, I, I, you know, that's Let me just interrupt you. I actually think, I mean, that is a problem of like political epistemology right but i do think that the political spectrum is a good 
illustration of that because I mean that is a sense that is a, a a phenomenon where this kind of spatial metaphor actually does work and can explain things. So right, if you are on the extreme left, you're far away, right, and you're looking at these you know more or less centrist figures like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. The the phenomenon of foreshortening works there so they look closer together when you're far away to the side than they would be if you are in between them where they look you know to be um totally different from each other in different directions so so in that sense i do think that the political spectrum kind of works but people aren't conscious of that when they place themselves sure you know you, you know one would really have to think more literally through the spatial um i mean that's a great insight you know, but like I've tried to explain to my uh, family <laughs> member, I almost said sibling. It's getting yeah. <laughs> narrower. It's getting narrower. Um, that you know, the far I have far left friends, and then I have extremely like mainstream, you know, Democrat loved Hillary fans, and that they hate each other, and they have very different ideas. For sure. And someone can just say the left and be done because it's all to it's all to the left of them. You know, and I think that right now we're we're in a moment that that foreshortening great like it's a great image is having a really pernicious influence on like the debates. Like there was like the New York Times cover like the day after like the first debate or second debate was like, you know, the Democrats are running to the left and the moderates are like really frightened. And then all the like the center right wing columnists like David Brooks and. I guess Brett Stevens, mm. who they're like, we hate Trump, but don't you're going to lose us because you're going to go so far left. And it's like, guys, you're perpetuating like a completely misleading and like, delusion of how people, you know, what people want out of their elected officials. Yeah, you know? it's very easy to be disingenuous with the political spectrum right? and just say things are just extreme. And it's and it's easy to for people on both sides to kind of combine um, to to do this foreshortening like in a rhetorical way, in a false way, and say like, yeah, like so, center calling center right people fascists, or saying that any kind of even moderately left of center economic um, policy is extreme left socialism. I mean, that's very common. Rather than dealing with the content, you know, no one wants to deal with the content of Elizabeth Warren's ideas because it's like t- too intellectually rigorous probably and so it's just easy to be like oh man she's taking everyone to the left and then most american voters they don't follow policy and they don't follow content they follow Mm. labels and spatial labels are like really good shorthand and you're like well i'm not i'm a moderate i'm not on the far left and everyone tells me elizabeth warren's on the far left so i can't vote for her true you know and it does seem to in a way i mean it, sometimes you can say, "Oh, it, it privileges the center, and the center can can pr- present itself as the kind of sensible position in between these two extremes." And I think that happens a lot in in American politics, but it also can function to uh, radicalize people and to, you know, at the margins. I mean, it can also lead to radicalization where you say, "Well, we're the true um, we're the true leftists." If you're further away, and you can pull people more towards the extreme. But I mean, I was so I, like I was trying to see if there had been more of a popular um or in the discourse out there like d- critiques of um the political spectrum which were 
compelling in any way, and I didn't really have any luck. So I found three that have been written in the past decade. Um, the most recent one was from The Week um, by a guy named Damon Linker, and he's like the most mainstream guy um, that I found. It was all white men writing about this, by the way. Uh, it's yeah, all white it was guys white talking about this. It made me feel very depressed. I'm like, oh, am I like just this kind of boring um, pedant <laughs> uh, guy? Uh, because I, I'm, I shared the, an interest with these. This yeah. But anyways, Damon Linker, it's called The End of the Political Spectrum. And he he made, he's, you know, the, the, the lead is it's time. The time has come to scrap the political spectrum. Um, and... All three of the articles that I found in Factors are basically saying that yeah, the political spectrum is wrong. So we all know that it's wrong, right? That like, like because of the, the the things that I was talking about earlier, that you know certain things because you know libertarianism and fascism are both right wing. So so it's wrong. So we need to get rid of it. But also the idea that they were making is that it it produces more polarization because it it kind of encourages tribalism and identifying yourself based on ideological labels. And what I noticed was that, but they all... Or spatial labels at the end of the day. True. Yeah. So, so, but then what Linker said in the end was, he's talking about the rise of right-wing and left-wing populism. So he's saying, basically, we need to get rid of the left-right uh, spectrum and replace it with people who support the status quo and people who oppose it. That's basically his argument. So like left-wing and right-wing populism are on the same side in that sense. So he's doing the exact same thing, right? Lumping together political philosophies that are totally opposed to one another on, on one side of a spectrum. He's just creating a new spectrum. He's just basically saying there's this the, the left-right cleavage isn't the operative cleavage in politics. It's this status quo versus populist uprising spectrum. Yeah. Which is like, like who's content and who's discontented. Not particularly persuasive, right? The idea that it's, it's it's this idea because he's this mainstream, he's this mainstream politics guy. So it's the same thing. It's like Bernie is just this, the, the other side of the coin of Trump. The so left wing Trump. Not very compelling to me. The, the idea of creating another like, bipolar and this is like it's it's replacing a spectrum with um a, just a binary right and that's what well, like a, a lot yeah. of these guys tend to do so then the second one i read or go for yeah, it can i just uh, jump yeah. on in, in, in on this one yeah it, i mean well i hear you know i have a few friends who are like i, I honestly i have i've pro-trump people i've heard this from and for sure more pro Bernie people they are like, you know, Bernie's the man because he's going to bring all the Trump guys to us, you know, and vice versa, you know, like that you know, Trump, even in his uh, speech at the convention in, in 2016, the Republican convention was like, Hey, all, all you Bernie voters, you guys got screwed. Like come, come to me. Cause like, what's the difference? Like I'm like an old crazy guy from New York too. But I think, you know, what they're all missing is that many of the people they're describing are internally contradictory. And so, so this thing about high, the people who are upset versus the people who aren't, I just want to like give one or two instances that like trouble that because I think it, would, it also will trouble it for the, the, the guy you're about to cite. One is like the Republican donor class 
the ones who like love Trump, you know, like Steven Schwartzman and, and whatever, you know, there's some of these like, you know, like crazy billionaire dudes who love Trump. Not, not a ton. Um, Cause a lot of them are like freaked out, but yeah, they're just yeah. like riding the dragon, you know? And that, and that's an interesting difference, but are those people upset with the status quo or are they quite benefiting from the status quo? And you're going to put in, but they love Donald Trump. And then you're going to talk about like, unemployed steel workers in in west virginia and that you know that those people and and like these like wall street dudes are how do you put them on a vertical spectrum or on a spectrum of content versus discontent and then what about all the a big part of the way trump won i think is um what hannah arendt called them um Mm -hmm. fellow travelers that's a Marxist um, term you know, for like people that, who, like yeah, who are not like committed communists, but will you know help out the the process to a certain extent, right? So okay, Arendt yeah. uses it for the Nazis, and that you know, like she's like in Germany there were committed Nazis, and then there were conservatives who didn't buy into all of the Nazi stuff and didn't really think the Nazis were ever going to implement it, but they. The bottom line to them was that they were scared of the liberals, of the social yeah. democrats winning, and the Nazis were on the right, and, were, and they're like, "We will travel yeah. along, we will ride this dragon, and we think we can tame it." And so, are those people content or discontent? Are they right? For it the doesn't explain. No, it, just, it just doesn't you know? explain anything that has happened in the past ten years in American history, in American politics. <laughs> it's not. It's not a useful idea, but there is like what you were saying. There, there, there is this kind of seductive idea, and I think that that's that's popular on the the left, which is what you were pointing out, which is this idea that there's that the group of people, the electorate that is going to bring about you know socialism or left left wing victories in this country are people that can go either towards Trump or towards um, left wing populism, and it's like this alienated. They're radical. They're disenchanted. Yeah, and they're the, projecting with, their own. I mean, I think it's a lot of economics. young men. They're, they're projecting yeah, their, so their own ideas. Projection. And I do think, yeah. like, I just don't agree with that. I think that basically, like, the way to to bring about, like, if Bernie were to win, it would be mainly with the same people who voted for Obama, who are supposed, you know, who is this neoliberal, right? So this idea of neoliberalism being the consensus, and that um, this is another way of t- of basically saying what. Um, Mr. What's his name again? Linker was saying that there's neoliberals who are consensus status quo people. And then there's the um, populists who are against neoliberalism and they can either become right wing uh, nationalists and racists or whatever, or they can become left wing socialists. There, there, there are like latent allies, and we just right, have to exactly. activate. Yes, that's the territory. That's the territory. Yeah. That's that, that the, the word's going to be fun. And they don't actually care about like guns or cultural issues, even right, though they right, obviously right. many of them um, do. <laughs> so know? anyway, so the next guy, um, it was you know less also kind of unsurprising in his critique because it's it's a man named Crispin Sartwell, and he wrote in the Atlantic a piece several years ago, 2014. The left right political spectrum is bogus. Crispin Sartwell is an anarchist philosopher. Uh, all three of these guys who wrote articles are are academics or have PhDs at least. Um, never trust them. Never trust uh, them. PhD. And he basically does the anarchist 
thing, which is like actually both left wing and right wing are like about hierarchies and like I'm about I'm against hierarchies, man. And it's like so state power. And he basically invents <laughs> his own dummy straw man version of the spectrum, which is like left wing is about state power. Right wing is about corporate power. Those but but they but they exist together, corporate right? Power. Like and so these 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 hierarchies intersect with one another and they coexist. And so that's this whole whole point. And um, so he does this whole horseshoe thing and he says there are alternatives, and the one I suggest is this. So this is his alternative to the left-right political spectrum. We should arrange political positions according to whether they propose to increase hierarchy or to dismantle it. Instead of left and right, we should be thinking about vertical versus horizontal arrangements of power and wealth. So he's basically saying like, we should set up a, a way of thinking about politics where there's good libertarians and then everyone else who's wrong, which is like a very typical libertarian move. Yeah, or whatever anarchist, anarchist move. Yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 also just like it's so easy to okay. Um, do they propose to increase hierarchy or dismantle it? Yeah. Guns. What do you want to do about guns, bro? Like such a curveball to that, you know? Because some gun people are like it decreases hierarchy if we all have guns, you know. And other people, uh, people who tend to be more egalitarian in their rest of their politics think that we should not have guns you know like me um or as many guns or whatever yeah it it just Um, doesn't seem like uh, anyways it it doesn't seem it's a way of organizing um or arranging political positions in in his uh, view of that is clearly like just privileging It, it it puts his personal political philosophy in contrast to what he sees as like everything else which is wrong um and it's totally like, unrealistic, and I don't see how it would really be that useful in terms of understanding, once again, like what has happened in the past 10 years, for example, in American politics. Oh, and listeners, yeah. that's yeah. what we're here to help you do. We want to help everyone understand what is happening and what yes. has happened. And yes, and the better. last one is I'm not going to talk about very much, it's by Hiram Lewis who is a Mormon professor who's written a book about like how to argue against atheists. And he's, it's his piece is in Quillette, which is a kind of very lightly edited website. Um, uh, that is, I think libertarian it's called, it's time to retire the political spectrum. You're like, I'm reading these Mormon libertarians <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I can't believe it's um, all just white and men. So he basically talks it's, – it's, it's not a very good article. <laughs> and he, he, The way he talks about the political spectrum is he, he really just means ideology and like a, identifying as left-wing or right-wing. So it's a, once again just a binary, which isn't that useful. And um, he just says, you know, let's, let's address specific problems and work together and be pragmatic and stuff. Um, so he's not suggesting any way of organizing or thinking about the way political ideas uh, interact with one another or relate to one another. So not very useful in replacing the political spectrum, just saying, let's just forget about ideology. But does it need to be replaced? I mean, I'm with him on, here's where I'm with him. The spectrum in the ideology thing, I'm left, I'm right, whatever, does create, because I think at the end of the day, most people sign up for their team, and then they get the position papers, you know, and the proof of this is that, um, I mean, this is something you said in a, you know, with me in a different 
time we were talking is like Trump changed the positions on like a ton of issues like Russia that the Republican Party had, but people signed up for that team. And it's like, okay, here's the new positions, you know, and whether they were further to the left Fair or to enough. the right, no, I, you know, that's, 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 that's fine. That's, but that's a different, so, that's a different, that's a whole different you know? thing. I mean, political tribalism and belonging to a group is one thing. Um, and that's all true, but it, you don't think it's tied to self-identifying with a, like being on one end of the spec, you know, the embattled left or the embattled right who has to fight for their existence because those crazy people on the other side of the spectrum are driving I don't us think, this sure, I don't think undesirable you direction. The, spectrum, the, idea, the, the metaphor of the spectrum to um, feel that way. But I do think it can influence in certain subtle ways the way you inter you the way you identify and um the way you see the other group right but it's still basically a binary of two discrete groups um and i just think i mean here's one thing i mean uh, and i just want to say i'll just put out what I, what i think about the political spectrum and all of these the political compass the horseshoe theory these are abstractions right so they're they're ways to to help us orient ourselves. But we need to remember that these positions, these ideas, they don't exist in this in this abstract geometric space, right? They're not points on a graph. And even human beings, like I am not a point on a graph on a political spectrum or compass because my, even my political philosophy is not coherent. It doesn't fit on one discrete point. You know what I mean? And so the the space that political that people exist in that political ideas i know what you mean yeah yeah um the the space that people and his political ideas exist in is a historical space right it's like people exist in history and they they have ideas and they think things and they write things right and so that has to always be the primary space in which you understand politics does that make sense? I mean, and you can use left and right political spectrum or, or compasses or whatever you want to organize ideas. But I'm just, what I'm concerned about is not like just the idea of belonging to a group or having ideological commitments and sticking to them. It's more the sense that 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 ideas should be thought of and treated in this, in this abstracted, almost mathematical way. And what that's what kind of what I worry about it. It's a more basic idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think that some of the unease right now, you're saying like, I'm not a point on a graph. And I just saw this article um, also in the Times that was, which I actually like this article, I'm not just bringing up bad ones, which was like placing the Republican Party's platform on a, on a graph next to the right-wing parties in Europe. Mm -hmm. And it turns out it's to the right of all the center-right parties in Europe, and it's actually even to the right of some of the like quasi-fascist parties. Like it's to the right of UKIP in England, and it's to the right of the National <laughs> Front in France, um, which is like amazing, but not surprising. But again, that's just like I guess that's the whatever their platform was, you know, in 2016. I don't know, you know, this thing for reducing people's political affiliations and beliefs and what also kind of their social, you know, milieu to a point on a graph is I think it's extra resonant because we're in this Silicon Valley moment, no offense. And um, where everything is being quantified and yeah. the very idea, you know, that 
Russia made use of Facebook and Cambridge Analytics and, and, and made use of social media is to say that there, it is possible to, with enough data, maybe they're using a much more complicated uh, graph graphing system than like a line that goes from left to right, but to reduce people to data points and then having done so to sort of like know what buttons, what emotional or, or like intellectual buttons to push to make those people, you know, in this case, they were trying to, you know, Russia was trying to get people to vote for Trump and you run these ads. And and the fact that that seems to have worked is, is I agree with you in, in that what I want, what you're saying to be true, but it, it's like scary to the extent to which people do sort of follow like certain definable patterns. And I think that's also worth in investigating. For sure. Yeah. I would just say that, 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 you know, keep using these metaphors to, to orient yourself, but remember that. But it wasn't a metaphor for like Cambridge Analytica, yeah, you know? Yeah, true. Um, well, I mean, it was a set of data. I mean, it was an, look, when, when, when Cambridge Analytica produces these models and has all this data, it is an abstraction, right? The data of your, that, that you produce and you, the, your footprint online is an abstraction of you. There's this idea out there, and I want to talk more about this on the podcast, that the data you leave online is actually your authentic self. It is not. It is an abstracted idea of you, right? And they can make guesses. They can make informed predictions about your behavior based on that abstraction, um, and they can strategize based on that that abstraction. But in 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 a, in a large in a big data in a, like a large scale, they can maybe be pretty powerful in their predictions. But they don't know everything about you. They don't have access to your authentic self just by looking at your Facebook likes, right? So, so that's one thing. But I mean, I just wanted to say, you know, just remember you know, the the way these ideas are produced, right? The context in which they're produced. And I would say that a, a useful way. That I, that I use to think about the way these ideas relate to each other is that there are traditions of thought, right? There's a conservative tradition of thought. There's three, I would say there's three main traditions of, of political thought, which are operative now. And there's some other minor ones, but the main three are the liberal tradition, the conservative tradition, and the radical tradition, right? Or you could say leftist tradition if you want, um, but still using that spatial metaphor, right? And those, these traditions develop over time and they contain different strands. So they're, so they're capable of containing ideas that seem contradictory because they're not forced together on this, in this abstract space. They're complex and living traditions with texts and people and changes over time. And people affiliate themselves to more than one of those at once. Right, and they can overlap too. And so that's why you don't have to worry about the fact that um, say, say, take Stalinism, or like you know, left-wing totalitarianism and right-wing totalitarianism, fascism. I mean, these two things developed at the same time in history and in conversation with each other, right? And in competition with each other directly, and as a response to like the failures of liberalism. So, so that that is all the context for understanding how they have certain in certain ways they develop in parallel in certain ways they're total opposites to each other and adversaries to each other right but they're also products of even like certain economic and technological changes that were simultaneous like of absolutely. course absolutely right so that's the whole you point take a slice of time and there's a certain common variables so stop yeah know. so so like the people people think and this is one of the main things people think that it's a problem that fascism and Stalinism are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And 
it's not a problem because this is a, a complete invention that we've made up to try and organize political <laughs> ideas. It's not a problem that they have certain similarities, right? And I do want to I do want to emphasize I'm not one of these people who are like, oh, they're exactly the same. Um, there are yeah. big differences, well, and well, I'm not like so. I'm not like yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, I, I don't want to be one of these people who totally demonize the USSR. Um, but yeah, but do you understand what I mean? I mean, people spend a lot of time thinking about problems which don't exist. Yeah, well, but unfortunately, they they self-reproduce. So, yeah. you know, there's that Times headline or someone watches CNN, you know, and they say these candidates are on the left and these are on the Biden's in the center. And then that's if that's the language that you're offered by the most available uh, discourse, you know, then that that's the language that people will traffic in. And I think your thing of say, trying to understand these things historically, and what I take you to mean by that is that, you know, these traditions, let's say that there are these three traditions. That's not to say that there's three individuals, there's three types of people you can be, but you can draw from three traditions. And the, you know, the conservative is keep things the way they are or were, the liberals like, let's try to improve things like gradually. And the radicals like, let's try to fucking blow everything up and make something way better. And mm -hmm. those were produced by other people in other configurations of time, you know, other moments in the development of technology, other economic moments, you know, and you have to attend to all the variables that cumulatively add up to, you know, a historical and an historical condensation, you know, of, of a moment to understand why, you know, this is where the radical tradition, what it was offering in this moment, and this is what it's offering in this moment to understand it in terms of its history. I think that's the type of thing that hopefully on this podcast we'll do is like understanding what's available to us in terms of its history, not just its intellectual history, but like, you know, it's like cultural history. Um, but I think that what also demands just like a base level of knowledge that a lot of American and American voters don't have. And I mean, I know this is an easy like shit on Americans moment, but I'm going to I'm going to take it. And it's that I think there's something uniquely American about how incredibly nonsensical our two party left right thing is, you know? Yeah. And it could only flourish in a world where people are like very, very ignorant of the traditions that they're signing up for, I think. Mm. And, you know, I don't know, is it different in Europe? Kind of, I think. Right. I think it well, is a no, bit different. I, 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 I do think that's important. Like, and with these traditions, like these, these, these traditions are oriented, I would say broadly, um, they have to do with, or they're connected to certain class positions as well, right? And so there is a concrete kind of interest behind each body of uh, each tradition, each body of ideas. And I do think that in this political spectrum idea, because you abstract it, it becomes this idea of, oh, it's just ideology. It's just these this grab bag that basically you, you sort yourself out almost randomly into liberal or conservative, right? And then there, you become tribalistic and you hate the other side. And it's just not, there's no sense of like, what are the concrete interests behind these um, these positions are these uh, these political ideas, right? And that that goes back to what you were saying about, you know, 
Trump's support being um, incoherent, right? Some people who are fully buying in, some people who aren't. I mean, there is a class interest argument that can explain why some people are going along with it and some people are enthusiastic about it, right? And so, so that's why. Um, but also, like a race thing and a culture thing, and yeah, I mean, I think also a lot of this tries to, and, and, and you get this on on right wing intellectuals do it too. Is everyone wants to say our ideology is here to protect and advance the interests of the little guy, and their ideology is just a bunch of really mean, fancy people, you know. Sure. And, they, and that's what they say about us and that's what we say about them. But, but the reality is like the quote unquote, you know, like proletariat or underclass or whoever that everyone's competing for has not signed up all in for either vision in America or for any of those three visions, you know, because they're, you know, the interests that might motivate like a former union, former factory worker in Dearborn, Michigan the interest that might motivate him in this last election may have been like racial and two elections ago, it may have been economic, you know, or what have you. Hmm. And those things oscillate in, in, in an individual's lifespan. And um, yeah, I think that, that I, it, it, it's hard because the, a thing that I always want to push back against is this demonization of like those people, whoever they are, are lost to us because because they've been manipulated by the rich people or because they're racist or whatever. It's, you know, maybe they are lost and maybe those things are true, but like, I think it's a little bit intellectually lazy to be deterministic. And, but most people are intellectually lazy. And so that's like what we're up against. Yeah. Reality is powered by people who aren't thinking about it Mm. critically. Yeah. Okay. Well, the last thing uh, I wanted to say. Okay. (laughs) Okay. To all that. (laughs) No, it sounds good. But I I think we should wrap up. And I just wanted to say, this is is, uh, (laughs) what's interesting about the political spectrum has been around for a while, but we're living in a, in a period where spectrums are kind of proliferating. Right. And so there's, I like that. There's much, uh, you know, the idea of sexuality as a spectrum has gained purchase this, in this uh, decade, I would say now the idea that gender is a spectrum is becoming more and more prevalent. And also in terms of things like uh, mental health, um, autism, autism is a spectrum now. It's no longer just a, just a disorder. So it's not a binary. You're either autistic or neurotypical. It's a spectrum. Um, and I do think that there was there was this kind of period, and I think it was when we were in college. It was all about like, oh, false binaries. We need to get rid of these false yeah. binaries. And now we replace them. them all with spectrums. And I do think that false spectrums. Yeah, false spectrums. We need to explode these false spectrums. I really do think that. And I mean, if you if you look at take take something that's fairly innocuous, like the idea that there are extroverts and introverts, right? So that's a binary. Yeah. And then you say, oh, okay, yeah. well, actually, there's not just it's not like you're one or the other. It's a spectrum. So there's more introverted people and more extroverted people. Um, so, but here's the thing. People's personalities don't necessarily, you can't set everyone in a line from most introverted to most extroverted. There's people who are extroverted in certain contexts and introverted in other contexts, and you can't place well, them. Well, that's where you got the Myers-Briggs. They have like another... There's like two other polls that. They, well, they, no, they it's just, that's just four different. It, well, that's just four. Myers Briggs yeah, is just four problem. binaries, right? You're one or the other, yeah. and it's like a, it's like digital. It's like zeros and ones, right? And you end up with your own personal string, um, and 
so that's that's not very helpful, I don't think. And and that was I was thinking about the Myers Briggs. That's why I was thinking about ext- extroversion and introversion. Like you can't even really place that on a spectrum. And I think in general, people need to think critically about these kinds of spatial metaphors, like I've like I've been harping on, um, in the way they they see the world, and it and it might open their why eyes. Why is the temptation so strong? Thinking and feeling is another. I don't know, but whatever, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah, they're all binaries. But the temptation, I mean, there's this book right now about introverts that's like on the New York Times bestseller list. It's basically like, hey, introverts are ruling the world. And to me, it's kind of like an ideological justification for people like Mark Zuckerberg to like have no humanity or empathy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then all these people are like, oh, I don't have empathy. Like, I'll buy this book and I'll become a billionaire. Um, That whole identity. Why? The whole introvert identity movement. Yeah. I would say (laughs) it's a big thing. And I I would say, I mean, on Twitter, what I see mainly is a backlash towards that. Um, And you see it more and more. And I do think that people it's almost like people who are were popular in high school feel like they're the um, oppressed minority now. Um, And I would say to that i mean there are people who are introverts and who like suffer in high school and i actually still feel sympathy for them even though people like mark zuckerberg run the world and we have to watch comic book movies all the time Um, (laughs) but yeah so anyway so that's that's um let's leave it there we've been talking for a while about this and um so that was the first show and uh you know like and subscribe we haven't set up any of the infrastructure yet but we're going to be posting this soon and um putting it out on twitter and online into the world and we hope you will join us on this journey this journey toward literally everything oh yeah